Well, I've been kind of surprised over the last, the first two services, because I asked this question and everybody was like, huh. So, how many of you are Lyle Lovett fans? More than, you guys don't like Lyle Lovett? I love Lyle Lovett. It saddens and disappoints me. I'm feeling somewhat alone. Lyle Lovett burst on the scene in 1986. I text him with a guitar. He was kind of pigeonholed into the country music thing. In 1987, he came out with an album. And he sought and then created, he's attributed to having created a, a completely new genre of music called Americana. It's a blending of country and gospel and big band all together. The album that came out in 1987, Pontiac, has um, a fun song on it. See, Lyle Lovett in his late 20s and early 30s was a devout uh, bachelor. He never wanted to marry. Um, and he liked to poke fun at things in his songs, especially the institution of marriage. He would poke fun at that. And so he, he wrote a song and, and it, was, it came out in 1987, which I just thought was hilarious. It's called She's no lady, she's my wife. And here are some of the lyrics. She hates my mama. She hates my daddy too. She loves to tell me she hates the things I do. She loves to lie beside me almost every night. She's no lady, she's my wife. The preacher asked her, and she said, I do. The preacher asked me, and she said, yes, he does too. And the preacher then said, I pronounce you 99 to life. Son, she's no lady, she's your wife. I mean, you can see he's always had his own and unique style. Um, now he wrote that song six years before he met Julia Roberts. And then they meet. They dated for three weeks before they got married. Now, celebrity marriages, right? You gotta love them, you gotta hate them. And so there was all of this back and forth as to what's gonna happen with this celebrity marriage, right? Given his background, devout bachelor who makes fun of uh, marriage, and her, she was significantly younger than he was, and she had been linked romantically to a bunch of different guys. So what would happen? They got married, by the way, in a small little Lutheran church, he's the Lutheran, in Marion, Indiana. They just showed up one day and got all married. So what was gonna break, right? Was this gonna last forever? Was this gonna be the power couple of all power couples? Anybody know what happened? Yeah, it lasted 21 months. Exactly 639 days, not a shocker. Such great expectations, and then those expectations are dashed. In the series of great expectations that get dashed, we hear of those. Well, I'm glad we got the humor out of the way, because I am dead serious about this text. 
hear me clearly that I am dead serious about this text. There is no text that has been used more often for the abuse of women than this text. That this text has been misinterpreted either accidentally or intentionally been misappropriated and been used to hurt, force, and manipulate women into a submissive role. And I can tell you that that is sin. So hear me clearly. Because it's never appropriate to do that with any text, not this text, not any text in the Bible, not any writing from a book. It is inappropriate and just plain wrong. But that is what has happened with this text for generations. And so we better take a good, long, hard look at it and figure out what it says if it does not say this. So I invite and encourage you to open to 1069 in your pew Bible. Please, whether you have a pew Bible in front of you or you have it on your device, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 21. 1069 in your pew Bible. So 521 begins, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. The second to the last word there, the Greek word is phobo. That word reverence is phobo. Really bad translation of that word. Phobo is the Greek origin of um, phobia. It actually means fear or terror. So essentially we have right from the get-go, be subject to one another, because God's serious about this. So God takes this seriously. Be fearful if you get this wrong. And sadly and tragically, men have gotten this text wrong for thousands of years. So be subject to one another out of reverence for God. Again, I wanna be clear about this text too is that it says be subject to each other, to one another. So it's a mutual thing, right? Both men and women are supposed to be subject to each other in marriage, 521. And then in 522, which is this next piece of Greek here, it says, wives to the own husbands as to the Lord. There is no word to be subject to in that sentence. It basically, the text says, and again, a lousy translation, it says, be subject to each other and women do that. So the phrase that's so often used, wives be subject to your husbands, is actually nowhere in this text. So then that word, to be subject to, what is that? That's hopotasso, which is a word of conscious choice. It is a word that means choose to make yourself less. 
Choose to place yourself below. In essence, choose to lift another. So what are we supposed to do? To each other, in verse 21. In marriage, we are to be about the work of lifting up others and intentionally putting ourselves below them. That's what this text really says. And so again, my frustration is, for so many generations, men have used this text as the reason and God's endorsement to push and force down women. And the text says nothing of the sort and rather says, everybody's responsible for taking a subordinate role and lifting up your spouse. That is what this text says. Paul regularly uses hupotasso in his writings. Paul uses this phrase, be subject to, over and over and over again. And you know why? Because critical to Paul's theology, the cornerstone, one would say, of Paul's theology is to die to oneself. Paul is a believer that that's what you're supposed to do. First and foremost, you die to yourself. And so taking the subordinate role, raising up your spouse, that is dying to yourself and lifting up the other. So this is exactly what Paul, in line with what Paul is talking about. Now the fact that he starts talking about the roles of husbands and wives, you begs the question, why would he even go there? What's up with that? Why are we even having this discussion? Well, context is everything. If you, if you haven't learned anything at Sheridan about how we study the Bible, context is everything, right? And so let's think about and reflect on the context that Paul is writing into. Paul, everyone believes that Paul wrote this letter to the people of Ephesus, the Ephesians, in 62 AD when he himself was imprisoned. He was stuck in prison, he wrote this letter, sent it off. That's two years before Nero started Rome on fire, played the fiddle, blamed it on the Christians, and then burning his own people and not doing anything about it, and blamed this new group of people called the Christians because they were an easy target, and that's when persecution started. Now, in the years leading up to that, there was the hint and certainly the trajectory towards persecution and that's what Paul's writing into. You see, because in a poor city like Ephesus, that's so diverse and has so many kinds of people, there were all these pagan religion practices. And everybody was kind of a live and let live kind of people. So let's just, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. Christians were the opposite. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and so, the movement of Christianity as it first started actually was called the way, not a way, not one of many ways, the way. And so Christians were intolerant of the pagan practices that were all around them. And of course we know it's always been the case and still remains the case that women are more spiritual than men, 
And so women were joining the church, they were influenced, they were learning more. And so then they were going home to pagan homes and they were kind of saying, yeah, honey, what you're doing is wrong. And then that was causing strife. It was causing strife within their marriage. It was causing strife within the community. Religious, pagan religious leaders were upset about it. Government leaders were upset about it. And that was the beginning of this context of persecution that was just getting started. And then two years later, Nero happens and, and then it's all out war against the Christians. And so in this, again, this port city that was a part of Greece at the time, now it's part of Turkey. And there was all this diversity, all these people coming and going. That's how the Christian church got started, was it latched on to all these port cities so the word would spread. And in the midst of that, Paul is basically saying, women, when you go home to your families, don't upset the apple cart. Like, it's okay. If you believe in the other practices differently, don't create strife within your marriage. Just do that. Keep your role. And we can see that that's three verses, right? 22 through 24, what women are supposed to do. What's interesting about this, however, is then what men are supposed to do. Have you noticed that about this text? Did you hear that when it was being read? From 25 to 33, which is eight verses, not three, but eight, we hear what men are supposed to do. Even though it doesn't say it, it implies that women are supposed to submit. What are men supposed to do? You're supposed to love. And I dare say, folks, submitting is one thing. Loving is a higher level of responsibility, right? So women do this. Men, and, and verse 21 said, women and men do this. And then men, you have the greater responsibility and you bear the higher burden to do even more than what your wives are supposed to do. And that gets a full treatment of eight verses. And so again, the tragicness of this, the irony of this text, is that this text in which men make it seem so easy, like you're supposed to do this enough, is actually rather a text that says, no honey, let me lift you up, and I'm supposed to do way more than you. So this text that men have used for thousands of years to exonerate themselves from responsibility is actually should be flipped on its head because the greater responsibility is on the husbands. And you can see the pattern, the beginning of chapter six in the next two sections about what children are supposed to do with parents and then slaves and slave owners. The higher responsibility is not on the submissive one. The higher responsibility is on the dominant one. If you are in the lower place, be uplifted. If you're in the higher place, uplift the lower and then care for them, love them, nurture them and help them grow. That is what this text says. The dominant has a much higher responsibility. In the end, this text that has been used for so long to suppress to abuse and to hurt women was actually Paul's writing into a context to uplift 
support and move towards greater equality for women. I'm telling you, that has always been so hard for me because there are several places in Paul's writings where he writes about this. And in each place, it is misinterpreted. You see the major side heading here. It says the Christian household. That doesn't come from the text. That comes from the editors. Anybody know? It's actually it was called the household codes. Anybody know where that phrase, the household codes, come from? Who's the first person to coin it? Actually, it was Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote about Hostafel, which was the kind of order of the household, and that's what these texts are about, keeping an orderly house. And again, he lived in a time in which women didn't have the same kind of rights, but I will submit to you that I believe that Martin Luther was the first male feminist within the church. Let's remember the story. Martin Luther was, again, a devout single guy. He was a priest. And during the Reformation, kind of all heck was breaking loose, there was a group of nuns who showed up at their doorstep and Luther went and found all of these nuns' husbands. And he struck out with Katie three times until finally she looked at him and she said, look, I'm tired of all this. I'm marrying you. You're the guy I'm marrying. And he was like, what? But then he, he, he submitted and married her. And Luther at that point in time ran a medium-sized business. They had given him the entire building, which was basically the seminary. I've been there, seen it. And it's this giant place. And he had students living there. And, you know, basically, Luther was kind of a big blowhard. He walked around drinking his beer, spouting off. That's basically what he did. He didn't even write that much. Other people wrote down his stuff. He just spouted off and he had people write it down. And his wife, Katie, never knew how many people were coming to supper. Could be 10, could be 40. He would just show up. And she kept this entire business going, basically running a hostel. Food, supply chain, all that kind of stuff. She managed it all. And he, she did it without any help from him. And he loved her so much. He was one of the first men to really write of the beauty of romantic love that he had for both his wife and his children. And it was just, it's stellar to read. And at the end of his life, he was quite a bit older than she was. At the end of his life, he actually worked it out legally, which was super unusual in those days. He worked it out legally that she took over the business when he died. And that is what happened. So again, she certainly was a feminist, but I believe he was the first male feminist in the church. Their marriage was equal. Well, I'll leave you with a cute story. I think it's funny. No one laughed at it last night, so um, we'll see if you guys do. And it's this story of this mom who loved all the old Disney movies. And so she wanted her daughter to be exposed to all the Disney movies. And so she set her daughter down in, in front of Cinderella and she watched Cinderella. 
um, and mom was off doing her thing. And when Cinderella was over, the daughter comes up and starts talking to mom about Cinderella. And of course, mom wants to show that she's knowledgeable about this movie. So they're sharing and talking about it. And finally, the mom says, well, you know what happens in the end, don't you? And she said, yep. And mom says, they live happily ever after. And the daughter says, nope. And she's like, they don't. And the little girl said, no, mom. It doesn't say that they live happily ever after. It says that they get married. As we slay the great and weighty expectations of marriage being the same as happily ever after, let's slay that expectation. Let's put it to death and rather choose, make the choice to die to ourselves in our marriages, in our relationships, with our significant others, with our children, to raise them up. Let's make the choice to lift them and to submit in that way. In doing so, we will bear the higher responsibility of loving well, and we will fulfill the will of God. Amen.